You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we talk about how we can measure our impact, the impact of our research via data science. So data science on data science. Check out lots of lots of great stuff that is coming here in the interview with Mike Taylor. Data science, data science, data science. It's a buzzword that is coming up more and more and um, will surely not go away. But, you know, there's a lot of critique about it. But today we are talking about a couple of really interesting things, uh, how we can use our science to measure better the impact of our science. So watch out for this interesting discussion with Mike. Speaking about our science, this year's PSI conference in Gothenburg will be outstanding. I'm so much looking forward to it, to all the social events that, you know, are really part of this awesome uh, conference. So great to network, to speak to like-minded other statisticians, to meet old friends and to have some new ones. Surely arrive on the Sunday already because Sunday evening the get-together is already a really, really nice start into the conference. And of course there's also a lot of really good scientific content. So check out psiweb.org and look for the conference in Gothenburg and then see you there. Welcome to a new episode of the Effective Statistician. Today we are talking a little bit, you know, beyond only the clinical research side. We talk about how data outside of our usual kind of uh, databases potentially can help us in the future. And for that, I'm really happy to have Mike Taylor on the show. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? It's uh, it's really nice to have this opportunity to have a conversation. Uh, yep. As you know, I, I love the data I work with, really enthusiastic about it. And every opportunity I have to talk about this glorious universe of data that I get to work in every day, the, the happier I am. That is that is outstanding. So maybe let's start with a short introduction of yourself and maybe also a little bit the company you're working for. Yeah, sure. So my name's Mike Taylor. I live in Oxford in the UK. I'm a local in Oxford. I don't really have very much to do with the university. I, I come from here. And I come from here because my dad was a research scientist working in agricultural science just down the road from here. And when I was small, I used to go and work or, or sit or play, draw pictures in his laboratory. So I was brought up around science and I'm, I'm culturally scienti scientific, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I live and I breathe research and science. Um, but despite that, I'm not really an academic. I, I do academic work as well, but mostly I work with what people are doing and I'm tracking conversations about research too. So I spent 20 years working in for one of the uh, one of the 
in fact, working for the largest uh, academic publisher, doing lots of different things with them, working in their research and development group because I like playing around with data. And then five and a half years ago, six years ago, I decided that I wanted to join digital science. And it was at the time when they were working on this, this wonderful product called Dimensions that I knew nothing about when we came, when, when I was asking them for a job. Dimensions then is one of the, one of the products that digital science has alongside Altmetric and the two products work together. So in Dimensions, what we have are a database of, I think the largest, I like to call it the largest auditable database of research publications. So it's much bigger than PubMed, about three times bigger than PubMed. Um, but unlike something like Google Scholar, you can actually do analyses over it that we have access to the data. So we can run all sorts of computations on it, get all sorts of insights on it that are almost impossible to use, do you um, using something like Google Scholar. So best of both worlds, I, I like to think. And not only do we have publications, we also have books and chapters. I'm a books person, so I love that. Um, we have clinical trials, we have patents data, we have policy documents. So lots of different kinds of data, billions of connections between these things that are set up by the, the folk who run Dimensions. And alongside that, I work on Altmetrics, on, uh, on Altmetrics. So Altmetric is the, the product, Altmetrics is the thing. It's been around for about 12 years. What Altmetrics do is that we look at things like tweets and blogs and policy documents and news sources and Wikipedia for links to research and clinical trials, uh, citations sometimes, but sometimes just mentions. Um, and what this gives us is this uh, gigantic database of, of millions of connections between research and clinical trials and things that aren't research and clinical trials, but are in the, in the, in the public uh, in mm -hmm. the public domain. So if you go to a Wikipedia page and you look down at the bottom, there's a whole bunch of citations to research. We count those up and we surface those. And what this means is that we can draw these data pictures of what's going on with research in a, in a broader context. And although there are a number of people who, who have been doing things like that, Altmetric has probably got the largest database. Um, and I get to sit in the middle of this wonderful web with both dimensions data and altmetric data. And I pull the two things together and together we, I can uh, create these uh, translational maps of where research is going from the laboratory through to the hospital um, and then out into the broader population. Very, very cool. So it's really kind of data science on data itself. And uh, that's, that's a pretty meta way of working. So let's, start a little bit with the with clinical trial data so how how do you include clinical trial data in there so so you uh, look for clinicaltrials.gov and these kind of things isn't it that's right so we access not just clinicaltrials.gov but i think it's 11 or 12 different clinical trial registries so we have a very broad range of data and we index this and obviously as everyone will know the data in clinical trials is, is well structured when people are creating the trials and then it gets put into a pdf file or yep. a web page neither of which is structured um, each one of the trials uh, trial databases is structured slightly differently 
And then what we have are data scientists, like real proper data scientists, who pull that data together and put it into a format which is the same. So in other words, I can I can drop into Google BigQuery or in Dimensions, and I can run analyses across a number of different registries at the same time, completely transparent to the fact that they're structured differently. And this means that we can dive into understanding what, for example, trends are in, in, in with Chinese hospitals and the work that they're doing in certain areas and make contrasts with the rest of the world. Um, in terms of the social impact, we've only been looking at clinicaltrials.gov. There are various reasons for, for doing that. We've been collecting clinical trial data for from clinicaltrials.gov for a number of years. We've just added the UK registry. Again, there are technical reasons for it. And we're hopefully going to be adding the others next year when we've got our head around the, the technical issues. In short, it's quite difficult to go to some of these registries and to get a URL which you then go and share. So it's difficult for us to identify where they're being shared on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK, when well, it's quite easy, the clinicaltrials.gov, obviously very easy. So it's a, it's a question of choosing choosing your battles with this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going for the easy ones first, for sure. So, um, and then there's these publications. And so you're able to link different publications to the different studies and kind of understand from that, okay, for example, if you have a, your, maybe your own study, you can see kind of uh, what all the kind of different publications are coming from that, but you can also see what competitors, for example, are doing. Yeah, and uh, in this Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. The thing about dimensions that, that we've really invested money in is creating those connections, mining those mining those connections. So in general, documents have uh, have two-way connections. So we can see where uh, clinical trials are linking to primary research, but we can also see where primary research is linking to clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, for, for the people who are investing in clinical trial research, it's really important to understand whereabouts that impact is being made and who's doing that impact. Um, so typically our work will involve in mining those connections and trying to understand who's active in certain spaces and who's working in other spaces. We've just invested in another product, uh, which is in the life science space. And this allows us to do, for example, molecular matching as well. So although I've not done it yet, um, the, the pathway, if you like, for understanding the downstream impact based on molecular structures is possible as well, you know, which opens up this whole world of not just asking questions like who is working on this particular drug, but who is working on things like this drug. Um, and again, those kinds of very sophisticated questions are, in, well, in my experience, the best developed by working with the clients. You know, I, I would never say to a client, I know, better than you do. My job and my expertise is in listening to people who have got very focused research questions they want to work on and seeing what we can do to develop those questions and, and go from sort of hypothetical uh, questions to um, producing actionable insights out of the data. Yeah. Real partnership. The, so that is another kind of interesting thing that you said, you know, you can know who's working on it. So you also extract the authors from it. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that it's, you get also much better sense of 
who are all the different European leaders and what are they doing? And um, also who's, who's authoring with whom? So you get a better understanding, are there certain groups that are always authoring together who are kind of the people in the, in the center of these groups? And, and so that helps tremendously when you're, for example, entering into a new field to understand the European leader uh, space. And who are who are the, the people that are that are showing up there? Yeah, I mean that's right, and it, it's it's a it's a really nuanced area, Alexander. So, for example, I mean, when everyone knows or understands the idea of a, a key opinion leader, and this is relatively easy to to look at in terms of uh, uh, citations and publication outputs, for example. When you draw a very visual network map of co-authorships, you can frequently see these people. They sit in the middle of research networks. They're very strong nodes. They have lots of publications, lots of citations, long history, and we can visualize all this using colors and blob sizes and all the rest of it. But for me, what's really interesting is when you can identify the people who are connecting networks. So, for mm -hmm. example, I did a research a couple of years ago in a rare blood cancer I'm being very careful not to not to mention names or to identify the research. Um, but I was working with a farmer and we were able to identify that there were a couple of people working for a competing farmer who, although very small in terms of that node, were had very strong relationships with many different nodes. So they were quite a small dot on my graph and you probably wouldn't even spotted them but they had a lot of connections with lots and lots of different key opinion leaders for me this was really interesting because it suggests a level of expertise and, and a level of engagement with a broad population that produced really interesting insight and th this is all data which is uh, available to anyone really going back a little bit further i did a i did a research project with uh, the uh, an irish university in galway a few years ago And there we were creating network graphs around uh, around bird flu, actually. And we were bringing in altmetric data. Now, there we were able to identify key opinion leaders, in other words, the top academics within that area. Um, but what was really interesting for me was to find that the, the researchers who had a public voice weren't the same people as those who had an academic voice. In other words, there was a whole other group of people who were able to produce research that was being discussed publicly, but not necessarily, those pe people weren't necessarily the sort of the academic leaders. And you, you get a, a sense that there are different kinds of leaders. So you've got the strong KOLs, you've got people who are, you know, who are leading teams, they may work in, in, in the Mayo Clinic, for example, they're absolute experts in an area. You've also got other people who are very influential, they work almost behind the numbers across lots of different teams. So they don't really show up as sort of, you know, one of those strong KOL leaders, but nevertheless, they're very influential. And you've got a whole other set of people who are able to communicate research to that, that broader audience who, who aren't necessarily the strong academic leaders, but they're probably communicating the results of that strong academic leadership through to a broader audience. So for me, it's really, really interesting and to be able to talk about and to identify these different flavors of leadership in strong data terms that stands up as a piece of evidence uh, is, is really, really interesting because as far as I'm aware, this is the first time that people have been able to do this kind of, uh, be able to do this kind of analytics. Yeah, and that is because you go through Twitter and other kind of media sources where there's um, open access to to these things so you can see ah oh, these people actually 
talk about it uh, in these social media platforms. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we can we can use the data on Twitter platforms. For example, it's not just Twitter. We have about 20 different data sources. Um, so we can estimate things like the number of... Uh, well, typically, there are two great, really strong metrics. So first of all is the audience size. We can do other things. So for example, let's talk about an individual Twitter account. We can tell how often they tweet about things, how often they tweet about research, how often they tweet about individual products. So for example, if we have an oncologist who is specializing in, say, small cell lung cancer, we can see which research they tweet. We can see whether they prefer to tweet about in, uh, one product over another product. We can see whether they're an oncologist or not. We can, we can identify um, how big the audience is they tweet to. Um, but we can also do things like identify the number of times they get retweeted. So how, how viral do their tweets mm -hmm. go? Um, who do they go to? So there's all sorts of computations that you can do to uh, quantify and qualify and discover um, the importance of individual people in terms of their Twitter profile. Of course, we can also do this you know, for a journal. So I can tell you whether a journal is more likely to be shared or tweeted about or get news coverage. And again, it's really, really interesting to dive into this. I did an analysis uh, about a year ago for a very special um, computational a journal that I'm sure your readers will probably know. They were really interested because although they're the leading academic journal, they don't get talked about very much um, on social media or in news. And that people were particularly earlier stage career researchers were um, talking to them and saying, well, why should we publish with you? Because there is this competing journal that actually gets a lot more attention and it is more likely to be talked about. And sorry, chaps, but that's actually an important thing for me to be talked about and have a public profile. Um, so that, that yeah. was a really interesting thing to dive into. And actually one of the things I identified was that their editorial board don't do any social media you know th 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 there's 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 nothing there it's just it's an academic organization focusing on academic and academic impact it's not particularly concerned about public uh public impact whereas uh, the competing journal is and this is of course very interesting uh, not just for academics who are looking to build up a public profile but also for pharma who are investing in relationships investing in research and wanting to wanting their research to be shared and talked about and analyzed and looked at. It's, it's really important when you do research that we remember we have a broader context. You know, this isn't yeah. just some endless pocket of money that we've got hold of that funds our research. You know, this, this is, we are doing research for a purpose and that purpose is to improve people's lives. Yeah. And that, I think goes to a really, really important point. The end of the story is not the publication. The end of the story is how it's picked up, how it's you know written about in, in the news, how it's shared on social media yeah. and all these kind of things. And through this research, yeah, through these databases, you can get a much better grip on are your articles actually shared? Yeah. And what are you doing? to make these shareable. Do you have, for example, nice visualizations in it that are easy to be shared? Mm. Is it open mm. access so that it's easy shared? Does the abstract, is it written in a way 
so that it's easy to read and be shared. All these kind of different things. Are the authors themselves sharing these kind of things? Yeah, it's... Um, I get so across so many people that work in academia and also in the pharmaceutical industries that never ever share anything externally, yeah. Other than you know they're an author on a paper, but it's not enough to be just the author of the paper. You also need to promote it, and I think there with these tools you can measure how well you're doing in terms of promoting this and. Also, you can benchmark yourself or your company, your group, your team against others and mm. so see what are others doing that, you know, in maybe in competing companies, competing teams, um, how well are they doing in terms of sharing their research? Um, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, and also, of course, you can see, are there certain people we should, you know, work together with? Um, or maybe connect with because they will maybe likely be resharing our uh, stuff. That is another important thing. Yeah. I, th I think, yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of going back to the birth. You know, you talked about it being very meta, studying the data about data. And I, I think that it's worth talking a little bit about the field of scientometrics, which is the science of science, you know, again, to be quite, uh, quite, quite meta about it. So scientometrics has been around really since the 60s and the 70s, and it, it comes about through the digitization, you know, the early digitization of, of research, um, even if it was in, in cards being uh, computed by mainframes, you know, with Eugene Garfield and other people like that, the people who really founded this uh, area of research. But it's been a very active research for example if we if we think about you know what you're talking about it was first identified i think in 1967 by a researcher called gilbert that it's not just this is paraphrasing horribly and i it may not even be gilbert that i'm recording but that the 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 scientific impact of science only correlates reasonably strongly with the quality of the science there is more going on that determines whether science is impactful than whether it's good science. Yeah, And I can go back a little bit further. I can go back to 1650, um, if you like, 1650 or no, let's go 1666. So the birth of the Royal Society in the British Isles, coming after the English Civil War. And this was at a time when there was a lot of religious conflict in philosophy. And science, the scientific process, was a really early thing. After the, uh, after the Republic fell apart in England, the, the king came back, there was this, uh, this antagonism towards the scientific process that was being sparked up by the church. And the Royal Society was founded to advance the cause of science, not just in terms of uh, like developing science, but also the scientific process, arguing for the scientific process. And one of the things that they discovered really early on within 20 years of the foundation is that they needed imaginative science. They needed to communicate science to a broader public. And they went for this Royal Society and they, they actively went out and got people to sign up to it, to support it. And this was all about engaging with the public, engaging at the public with scientific research. And if you look back at their transactions, the philosophical transactions, the things that they were choosing to publish were things that were capturing people's imagination. They were descriptions of 
novel astronom astronomical events. They were descriptions of uh, really quite barbaric experiments, of explosions of novel chemicals, of unusual minerals, um, and bizarre physical phenomena. They were doing this not because it's eye candy, not because um, it was, you know, sort of weirdly interesting, but because it captured people's imagination in the scientific process. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that we cannot get away from, that we have an ongoing battle almost to discover, to advance that process, to excite people about what science is possible of doing. We get so jaded when we look at what science has managed. But what we have done, think about what we've done, even with the last 18 months with uh, mRNA vaccines and what that promises. It is so exciting, this notion that we can use RNA to kick off an immune response, to, to pre-program an immune response to the to the human body and what that might mean for things like osteoarthritis for example which is such a difficult topic to be cracking but essentially is about an immune response and monitoring and managing that that immune response all of these diseases that are so difficult to to deal with you know we are on the the dawn of an extremely exciting field of research in, in terms of these new technologies we should be excited about it we should talk loudly about the promise of it um i was really glad to hear that uh to to, to read bill gates's blog about um about the last of the year the uh, rest of the year really worthwhile reading and he's talking about the excitement of mrna vaccines um, but also the first malarial vaccine. I, I, I can hardly believe that I, I can talk about a malarial vaccine and it being a real approved thing. This is, this is a, a phenomenal thing that science has, has brought the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I completely agree. Yeah, it's completely fine to go on a tangent here. Yeah, it's really important to, to measure what we are doing. And it's really important to make sure that, you know, what we do really hits the targets. There's, there's this kind of organizational wisdom that just because you have done something doesn't mean that the organization can benefit from it. You also need to speak about it. Yeah. If you have written a report or done an analysis, but you don't tell anybody about it, if it's not existing. And the same is with, with our studies, with our publications. If we don't make people aware about them, if we don't help people get excited about them, if we don't you know, publish in such a way that it's easy for people to understand, it just doesn't have an impact as it should be. All of our science is really about helping the patients and through good, good information. That is really the key. And thanks a lot. That was a really, really good discussion about what's nowadays possible by linking all kinds of different databases together. Yeah, the databases from clinical trials, publications, grants, uh, policy documents, social media, all these kind of different things. And uh, this is a really exciting part of uh, the new way of doing data science. It's surely important to sometimes look outside of what's happening, you know, within the inner um, happenings of clinical trials and how these things can help us. Yeah, absolutely. I, we didn't even get started talking about quality of life indicators and involving patients. 
Um, maybe that's for another time. But I, I'm enormously enthusiastic about what we can do with our data to uh, improve the relationship between academia and research and with what patients need. Uh, it's, a, it's a topic that I can talk about at length. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike, for this very, very nice interview. And uh, check out the homepage for you to find the links to the different products we talked about and to Mike himself. Yeah. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, have a good holiday, everyone. This show was created in association with PSI. Don't forget to register for the PSI conference. This is a must-go-to conference this year. Thanks to Rain and her team who helps with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.